I wonder if anyone's ever come up to you and said this. I don't think it had to be that hard. It was as though you were doing something and there was an easy way for it to happen, perhaps a quick way, and you had to do it the harder, longer way. Uh, you walked past the easy way for one reason or another, and the way that you did it was much more involved and much more difficult than what it needed to be. Now, I've often thought this actually about the uh, fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. You know, Adam and Eve get to work sewing fig leaves together for clothing, which uh, at the very least has got to be very uncomfortable. Um, and they hide in the bushes from someone who made them and can see right through them. They could have just gone up to God and just said, look, we messed up. We got it wrong. And it would have been hard, but nowhere near as hard as what it ended up being. Uh, it could have been much simpler. And the reality is we don't always take the option, option to do things simply. Um, sometimes our desire to want to kind of work things out and nail everything down leaves us in a place where things are just harder than what they needed to be. And in fact, sometimes our, our wrestling with things and trying to work things out can leave us in a place where hard ways of doing things can start to feel normal. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You just go, oh, that's just how it's always meant to be. It's always meant to be really, really hard. Uh, but don't be deceived. I think most of the time uh, there's an easy way to do things. Uh, but I, I, I don't think that we uh, look for it sometimes. And today we're going to look at a passage um, in, um, in John, uh, the Gospel of John, which is a bit of a downer, to be honest, on uh, where we were last week. Uh, but it's... Uh, it's, it's um, it, it, it's John talking again about the varying responses that people have to Jesus. So uh, let's have a look at it. Uh, go to John chapter 7 in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to start at verse 25. And I suspect as we read through it, you'll uh, possibly at some point in time go, does it really have to be that hard? <laughs> does it have to be that hard? Because it, it's... Um, it looks like people in this passage are making things harder than they needed to be. John chapter 7, verse 20, 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that they were all waiting for, the hero? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. And the word proclaim there is actually he cried out loudly in the temple. You know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this, than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? Go down a few verses to verse 40. When they heard these words, words that we're going to look at next week, some of the people said this really is the prophet. Others said this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at working out Jesus, assumptions in Jesus, and letting Jesus tell you who he is. Let's kick right into the first one, working out Jesus. What you've got in this section of John is a whole bunch of people who are trying to work Jesus out. They're actually the, kind of the opposite of what Jesus talked about in the passage that we looked at last week. And remember Jesus said, he said, if anyone wants to know that I'm true, you'll do it by trusting me and obeying me. You learn ultimately about the truth of Jesus from the inside, not from the outside. And what we've got in this section is we've got a whole bunch of people on the outside critiquing and looking in. And the results are pretty average. Some get it, but most don't. Here's a couple of examples. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, but we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. You see what's going on here? It doesn't say this in scripture, but there's this idea floating around in the culture of the day that when the Messiah comes, the hero, the saviour, that no one's going to know where he comes from. And they're going, we know where he comes from. We know where he comes from. He comes, he comes from Galilee. So they wrote him off. And this kind of approach to Jesus was not actually that uncommon. Analyse him, find a problem, write him off. You saw that over and over. Analyse him, find a problem, write him off. If you work him out and you know what he's up to, then you don't have to pay attention to him. You can sideline him. That's what you can do. Well, what does Jesus do? Jesus fires up in the middle of this, right? And he cries out in the middle of it. And, you know, you look, at, you look at this and you go, how does Jesus know that they're talking about this? Uh, and I think he knows. I mean, he knows um, pretty well everything uh, as, as God. He doesn't know the final day when he comes back, but he knows pretty well everything. So he, he would know what people are saying. But, you know, I don't think he knows what people are saying because of his uh, divine knowledge, his... His, his knowledge is God. He knows what people are saying because I think you can hear it. You know, when, when I read this part of John, do you know what it seems like to me? It seems like someone standing up in front of a crowd and everyone whispering quietly 
or kind of quietly, and arguing about and debating whether he's actually the one that he says that he is. That's the way that I picture it. And even with Jesus raising his voice here and proclaiming, you know, what I, what I see when I read that uh, sometimes is a little bit like he put his teacher voice on, right? Because there's all this murmuring and whispering going on about him and he raises his voice because there's something that's really important that they need to know. And he tells them, what does he tell them? He tells them they have part of the story right. Yeah, they do know where he actually comes from, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that they don't know and he tells them all about it. And so... In a sense, the people kind of feel like they got him nailed down a little bit and then Jesus kind of slips out of their grasp and he tells them a whole bunch of stuff that they don't know about him. Here's the, um, here's the second one. You know, they, they uh, come to Jesus and they think they've got him nailed down. It's like, and Jesus is saying he's going to go away and they, they can't come and join him. And, and what Jesus is actually talking about is how he's going to go to the cross and die. And they kind of try to work it out. But they don't have anything other than physical categories. And so they kind of miss Jesus again. They think that he's going on a speaking trip somewhere. <laughs> That's what he's doing. They don't really have any idea what he's talking about. And all this seems to be going on while Jesus is actually teaching. As though people are gossiping and talking about who he is and what he is up to. He interjects a couple of times, but the rest of the time what we see, I think, is just murmurs and whispers going on. What we see with the people is there another lot of people and a long list of people that try to work God out, that try to nail Jesus down. And who knows that nailing Jesus down is notoriously difficult. Has anyone noticed that? Lots of people have tried to do it. And these, these are just some of them who have tried to do it. And it leaves us with this question, right? Um, can Jesus be worked out? That's a good question. Can you work him out? It's a tricky question, right? I mean, in one sense, it's kind of yes, right? And it may be that there's some people here today that fit in this category. It's like you don't know much about Jesus. You need to find some things out about Jesus. You need to verify that those things are true. Um, but in another sense, the answer is, is no. You know, there's a human tendency, isn't there, for us to work Jesus out and pigeonhole him. Right? Um, and I actually think, and this is a whole other sermon, which I'm not going to go into, I, I think our tendency to want to work people out sometimes is helpful because it helps us to learn how to be how to connect with people but a lot of times our desire to work people out our desire to work God out is about us being in control it's about us being in control and I think there is this desire in humanity to want to work Jesus out and to pigeonhole him but he continually slips through our grasp that's what he does he is a colossus of a person, isn't he? I mean, the moment that you think you got him worked out, he sidesteps you. It's really frustrating. Does anyone find Jesus frustrating sometimes? It's like, I thought you were this thing. And then you go over and you do that. They want Jesus to explain himself and justify himself, and he doesn't do it. You see that all over the Gospels. 
people want Jesus to be a particular type of person. And then he does something outside of the, the framework that you build for him, the framework of what you want him to be. You see this in the other Gospels that, that people try to work Jesus out and he does that sidestep thing. You see this in the Gospel of John. At the start of this chapter, in, in chapter 7, his brothers say to him, why don't you come up and do some party tricks at the feast? This is going to be great. You're going to pull a big crowd. You'll become a popular public figure. And what does he do? He goes up in secret. So his brothers would have found out about that, right? That would have been an interesting brotherly conversation. They sit down after all and go, what on? That was not what we said that you should do. That was a dumb thing to do. His brothers wanted him to do miracles in order to pull a crowd, but he doesn't do miracles. When he goes up, he ends up teaching people. That's what he does. And it's like, come on, man. Do something funky, something really impressive, something miraculous. He teaches, and he teaches with wisdom, incredible wisdom, and the Jews go, you're uneducated. That's what you are. Where did you get that idea from or those ideas from? You know, some people that we can see in this passage think he's the Christ, the anointed one. But then they go, no, but he doesn't fit the model of uh, what the Messiah is supposed to be. Uh, He talks about uh, going away and going to his death, and they think he's going on a speaking trip. And then the best that we've got in this whole passage is that there are some people that put their faith in him, but it's only on the basis of the miracles, which is kind of really kind of low-end faith. And later on in uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus makes a point, it's better to have that than nothing. But Jesus is aiming for something far, far more significant than that. Have you ever tried to work God out? Ever tried to nail him down? Have you ever thought that you had him worked out? Have you ever had a wrestle with something to do with God and internally you've gone, I can't trust God. Maybe you haven't put it like this, I can't trust God until I've got that worked out. I have. I remember hearing a story of a friend of mine who this whole Trinity thing with God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and they're all God but there's only one. <laughs> Blew their mind. And it, it, it almost, it just came down to a really deep faith and trusting in God. It's like, I have to work this out. What's, what's your thing that you have to work out before you can give yourself to God? Maybe, um, maybe it's something God needs to explain. He needs to explain something to you. It's like, no, I can't, I can't trust you until you explain this and then I'll be good to go. Maybe there's a bit in the Bible that really rubs you up the wrong way, right? And you just go, I don't, I can't come at it, right? There's an obstacle to your faith that's in the scriptures and you're going, unless that gets sorted out, I'm not in, at least not in fully. Have you ever tried to work God out? In some ways, this, this is the question, right? Um, 
Can you let God be God or do you have to work him out? Now, I'm not saying that you can't know some things about him and he doesn't reveal things about him, but I'll tell you something, you'll never get all of your questions answered. And some of you might go, in this life, and I'm just going, well, maybe even in eternity, because there's something... Let me tell you, let me tell you something about God. And you see this all over in the scriptures. Because you know, I hear people say stuff like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a lot of questions to ask God. Now, I think maybe there's going to be places to ask lots of questions in heaven. And I think there's good answers for the questions that we have. right? But I actually think that when Jesus shows up, you're just not going to bother about the questions. You know how I know that? Because that's what happens in Scripture when God shows up. People go, ah, you know what, the questions actually don't matter that much anymore. Because now I've got you. Because, and this sounds really, really cheesy. And I don't mean it in a simplistic way. I mean it in a deeply profound way. Jesus is the answer to all of the questions. He just is. Working out Jesus, number two, assumptions and Jesus. Look in verse 27, 31 and 41 to 42 here. What, one, of the, uh, one of the things that we see in this passage, aside from people trying to work Jesus out, is the effect that people's assumptions have on the way that they actually engage with Jesus. Another word that you could use instead of assumption is presupposition. Has anyone ever used that in a sentence? Put your hand up if you, if you use presupposition in a sentence. Excellent. So I'm not going to use it for the rest of this message, but let me it's actually the best word. Let me tell you what presupposition actually means. A presupposition is a belief that you believe beforehand that you bring into an argument or a conversation or, or uh, something that you're dealing with. All right. Um, it just kind of sits in underneath it all. Um, I'm going to use the word assumption because that's, uh, that's more uh, common for us. And so I want to ask the question, what are the three key assumptions that people are making in this passage that influence the way that they relate to Jesus? And I want to look at them quickly. We've already looked at one of them. Uh, one of their assumptions is that you're not meant to know where the Messiah comes from, okay? Um, that there's meant to be some kind of mystery to the origin of the Messiah. Now, obviously not everyone believed this, right? Because if you go back to Matthew chapter 2, uh, the Magi end up having this conversation with Herod and they tell Herod that the Messiah is meant to be born in Bethlehem. Um, and we actually find out later in John 7 in the interaction between the religious leaders in verse 42 that they know um, that, uh, that the scripture says that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem. Right? But the important thing to note here is that there's people in the crowd that assume that you're not meant to know where he comes from. And because you're not meant to know, they write him off. It influences the way that they interact with Jesus. Here's a second um, assumption that people make. Underlying belief that they bring to this interchange with Jesus. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? What's their assumption? The Messiah is going to come and do magnificent works, amazing signs. In this case, they're right, okay? 
their assumption is correct. And you can see that their assumption leads to an interaction with Jesus that's different to the previous one. Do you see that? The previous one is like, you're not meant to know where the Messiah comes from, so we write him off. This one is correct. The Messiah is going to come and do some wonderful signs. Uh, And as a result, it leads to people putting their faith in him. Not quite at the depth that Jesus is gunning for, but it does lead to that. What's the third one? The third one is is incorrect. (laughs) Um, But incorrect in an interesting way. Um, The third assumption about the Messiah was that he was to come from Bethlehem, not Galilee. This is uh, John... Uh, 7 verse 41 to 42, you can see on the screen there. Uh, Interestingly, um, you can see that assumption pops up again later on in verse 52 where they say to Nicodemus, the religious leaders say to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, you know what's interesting about this? He actually did come from Bethlehem. (laughs) And they should have known it. So in one sense, their assumption was right, but their information was actually wrong that they were bringing to this whole thing. You know, the very qualifications that would actually help to support the idea that Jesus is the Messiah were the ones that they got wrong. And so it influenced the way that they engaged with Jesus. So here we have three expectations about who Jesus was, or what Jesus was going to be like. One was positive and ended in people having faith. The other two were negative and left the people relating to Jesus incorrectly. But if you read through the rest of uh, the Gospels, you actually find this same dynamic happening all over the place, where people's assumptions influence the way they relate to Jesus. You go back to the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Do you remember what happened at the end of the feeding of the 5,000? Is Jesus had to quickly sneak away, get away, because they wanted to forcibly make him king. What was their assumption? The Messiah was going to be a military ruler that's going to free us from the Romans. And so they started to deal with him in that way. Each time they bring an assumption, it informs the way they relate to Jesus. That's the big idea. When the assumption is is accurate, it assists in relating to Jesus rightly. When it's inaccurate, it becomes a problem in relating to, the way, to Jesus the way that we're meant to relate to him. It skews it. Here's a summary. I've just been setting this up. This is where we're cutting to the chase here. All right? Here's the summary. Assumptions help and hinder the way we do relationship with Jesus. Everyone carries assumptions into the way that you do relationship with Jesus. Everyone carries assumptions about God. And what we bring with us informs the way we engage with him relationally. And it's actually true of horizontal relationships as well. If you... I remember when I was teaching, uh, kids would um, they'd go, oh, that, guy's, that kid's an idiot, right? And I went to the dictionary one time, got the definition of an idiot, and an idiot was um, someone incapable of making a rational decision, Right? So I went back to these kids, I said, that's a pretty high bar. <laughs> An idiot means you're irrational all the time. That's what it means. But 
can you see what goes on? If these people, if these kids are going, that person's an idiot, then every interaction that they have with that person is going to be interpreted through that assumption that they're making about the other person. Even the stuff that's actually reasonable is going to be interpreted through that. And what I want to do now, just for a few moments, uh, just as a community service, uh, is run through a few assumptions that we can have about God, which we carry around with us, which actually impact the way that we do relationship with him. You ready? God doesn't really care about the little things. This is kind of like white lie territory. He doesn't really care about that. You can, you can sneak around and, and do a few things and he's not really that interested or he's not even watching. He's not really that aware. Um, that would be one assumption that we can bring in. Here's another one. This is the big one. Now, we, we don't say this out loud, right? Because it's just not cool to say this stuff out loud, especially don't say it in the church. Okay? God's job is to make sure my life goes the way I want it to. When do you find out whether you've got that assumption? When it doesn't go the way you want it to. That's when you find out that assumption, right? Because when your life doesn't go the way that you want it to, do you get cranky with God about it? And that's another one. It's like it's a sin to be angry with God. And I think there's a lot of people who are angry with God who don't ever talk about it and don't want to think about it because they know it's a sin to be angry with God. And if you, you don't want to be angry with God, but they are angry with God. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. What about this one? Some of you carry that assumption around. Uh, God is disappointed in me most of the time. You see how that affects things? Maybe, maybe you've, uh, you've given up on him uh, being pleased with you or maybe you still have got some vain hope that you're going to be good enough. And you're going to be able to uh, behave well enough that he'll actually like you. God is low-level angry with me just about all the time. Just unhappy with me, what I'm doing. He's on the guest throwing around. And um, a lot of people believe this one. Um... God helps those who help themselves. Really? Really? God helps those who help themselves. See this one in the church a bit. Um, I need to be obedient so God will be pleased with me and bless me. That's why my life's not going right, is that I'm not being obedient enough. I've got to work harder. I've got to be more disciplined. And if you're under the age of 30 and perhaps even older. Uh, this one's a big one. God's a killjoy, isn't he? You see, the, um, I'll tell you something. Uh, your life will change significantly the moment that you think, the moment that you realise that God's commands and the things that he says are good. And they're always good. 
All right, this, this, this one goes right back to the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. What's the devil say to Eve? God's holding out on you. His commands actually aren't good. And so this is, this is a real kind of battleground. You know, if you think underneath that God's a killjoy and that he just makes rules to stop fun happening, instead of making um, guidelines and principles and laws so that life will happen, um, that's going to change the way that you relate to him. I want, I want to say something to you. Um, <laughs> and this is, some of you know this. Some of you know this. Maybe just at the moment, some of you don't, and that's okay. But who knows that God targets your false assumptions about him? Have you noticed that? He actually has got a laser target on it and sends laser-guided bombs in, and it really is irritating and annoying. Because those are the things that we lean on. Those are the things that we've built up to actually run our lives with and he's such a pain in the neck because he just sends a missile in there and blows that thing up. Is anyone with me on this? I find it irritating when he does that. Now it's life-giving, but it's irritating. He is on a mission to blow them up. Now, for some of you might go, oh man, that's not going to be fun. Well, it actually will be in the end because it's your false assumptions about God that are killing you. Where do we end up? Where do we end up? Well, you know where we end up. Is, uh, this is the simple thing. Right? Instead of trying to work God out, instead of bringing in these false assumptions that kind of mess with our understanding of who God is, we should just let him tell us who he is. I want you to notice something in this section of uh, Scripture. (laughs) Do you know what's going on in this section is there's a lot of people talking about Jesus and almost no one talking to Jesus. Do you see that? They're all having these, and no one's talking to him. No one's talking to him. I'm not saying that they didn't talk to him, but that's not what is happening here. You know, it's as if he's shown up and they're having this big deliberation in, in front of him about who he is. Look at this. This is all of them through the passage. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this? Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The Jews said to one another, when they heard these words, some of the people said, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, dot, dot, dot. You get the point, right? Everyone is talking about Jesus and no one's talking to him. This is something we find humanity doing pretty regularly, right? (laughs) And it's actually something that we can do in the church. Well, we have all this time where we spend talking about Jesus. When what we probably need to spend more time doing is talking to him and then listening to him. What does Jesus do along the way? While people are having all these conversations about him, he interrupts them and he tells them who he is. He responds to what they're saying. And it's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? 
I find it a bit uncomfortable thinking that Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God in whom his life itself is standing there talking to them and they're muttering and whispering about who he is. There's a part of me that just goes, you doofuses, just listen to him, will you? And if you've got some questions, ask him some questions. Have a conversation with him. Let him tell you about who he is. didn't have to be that hard it didn't have to be that hard folks it's this simple you listen to Jesus that's what you do you listen to Jesus you let him tell you about himself or you listen to other people tell you about him and what he said What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about another time that we've already covered in the Gospel of John where it's actually very simple. It's actually very simple. And it's back in John chapter 4. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? She goes into the town and tells the people in the town what Jesus said, what he did. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. What do you reckon happened? Well, they just got to listen to Jesus. <laughs> That's what happened. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world you need Jesus to tell you who Jesus is and you need to listen to him and you know something how do you do this well there's one very unique way that you do this and we talk about a lot you read the bible The Bible is Jesus' word. So you read it. And there's some gnarly stuff in there. And if you haven't read it for a while, you probably don't start at the genealogies at the beginning of Numbers. right? You probably don't start with the sacrificial system in Leviticus. You probably start in a gospel where you just actually get to read the stuff that Jesus says. And you know what? You know all this stuff. You do it every day, perhaps even multiple times a day. You might read something. I, I read something out of uh, John chapter 10 yesterday, and that was enough. It was like a good steak for the afternoon. It just uh, nourished my soul about Jesus being a good shepherd. How are you going with listening to Jesus? Jesus will speak also by his spirit. But it's not the main way that Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks to us through his spirit, through the word, where we read it and God speaks to us through it and we talk back and he tells us some more and then we talk back and we have a conversation with him. Are you listening to Jesus? There's a uh, term um, which some of you may have heard of before. It's uh, the term iconoclast. Um, an iconoclast is someone 
who makes a mission of shattering religious images. That's their, uh, their goal. And uh, there's a sense in which every single person, when it comes to God, needs to be an iconoclast. We need to smash our views of who God is and let him rebuild them. That's what we need to do. There is a Jesus that you don't know yet. You hear me? Because it's been obscured by your false assumptions and your false images of who God is. And so God's, I'm not saying it's another person, there's just a part of him that you just don't know yet because it's hidden behind those. And you need to let him tell you what he is like. No one has got a full idea of what God is truly like and what Jesus is like. So we need to bring some humility that says, can you please, please teach me? And that's why I think, uh, just as I close, the worship team can come up. That's why I think one of the best things that you can do if you're talking to people about Jesus is encourage them to read a gospel. And a good, good place to start is Mark. <laughs> you know, you just, you just want them to be reading the stuff about Jesus and to be reading uh, what he says. Let God be God and let God tell you who he is. I wonder if you'd stand with me and we'll, uh, we'll pray. God, you, um, over and over, through the scriptures, talk about us being blind and not seeing. And uh, we're going to come to a, um, a story in John where you heal the eyes of a blind man and it's going to lead into you healing our spiritual blindness. And uh, we just, just love you. Um, for those of us who uh, you've opened our eyes to see you, um, we love what we've seen and um, just honest with you about the fact that our uh, um, assumptions kind of can be helpful sometimes but they get in the way a bunch of times and uh, we need you to keep just uh, peeling back the, the cataracts and kind of grow across our eyes and helping us to see you truly and rightly because uh, you, you really are good uh, keep drawing us in Keep drawing us in. Thank you for your uh, your faithfulness, your consistency with us. Um, help us to see you more and more clearly. Um, yeah, please help us. Amen.